GMGM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. This is the best of the month July episode. Now, July was an amazing month of content for the podcast. We talked to art historians, crypto game developers, identity and reputation thought leaders, and leaders in Web3 branding. Now, in this episode, we have one clip from each podcast interview, so you can listen in on a bunch of different topics at once. And if you enjoy this clip, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the whole episode and the guests and, and what they had to share. So I'm learning a lot from these guests, and I hope you are too. And if you did learn something, or you just found this podcast entertaining, please subscribe and leave a review. It means a lot. Now, without further ado, let's dive in. For episode 139, this was one of my favorite podcasts ever that we had on on the Unstoppable Pod. I spoke with Josh Rosenthal, who's a PhD historian, and the entire conversation just blew my mind with insights that he shared comparing to the printing press and what we're seeing with NFTs today, and even comparing like the overall tech and Web3 boom that we're seeing to the Renaissance period. Now, I had a hard time trying to pick the clip to include here because so much good content was created out of this podcast. But it just got me deeply thinking about the power of art and where we are from a historical perspective. So in this clip, Josh breaks down how images were used in the Renaissance to convey specific meaning and values and how we're seeing the same trend play out with NFTs. And now these NFTs have additional layers of financial value, utility, and ownership. I hope you enjoy this clip. Let's listen in. Why did the last Renaissance succeed? It succeeded because it used this new technology, which is decentralized. And what do I mean by that? Well, they could share finance, but they could also share these ideas at a glimpse. And so most of the idea sharing and the ideas that said, hey, there's a possibility of something new that you haven't considered, and here's a blueprint for following that or for experimenting with it, was communicated in the form of an image. It's not just an image. It it means something. It signifies something, right? If you see a bee, it means Bitcoin. If you see the diamond, it means Ethereum. Maybe if you see the the flag or something, these images have symbols and they have like meaning behind them. So the idea of charging an image with symbolism and not just any symbolism that stirs emotive feelings, but that actually represents community, right? And so these like images, if you think through all the images you're surrounded with today that we take for granted, these images actually mean community. And they might even communicate very specific like narratives or stories. If you see an image of money printer go burr, I mean, you know what that means, right? That's you know something specific. And so an image of these things, you're not just looking at an ape, you're not just looking at a punk, you're, you're seeing something that means like, hey, there's value and rights and other fundamentals, but we're expressing it with a silly image, which, you know, to us moderns, that sounds silly. You're looking at this picture and saying that's ridiculous. But that that was the history of the Renaissance. When we think of the Renaissance, we think of, you know, Botticelli and Michelangelo, David and the Sistine Chapel. But that wasn't what transformed the society. That wasn't what medieval you would have seen. You would have seen something that looked very much like a cartoon character, right? Like on this woodcut, it would have been a block-based, you know, cut a piece of wood, stamp it and print it. And it's very lowbrow. It's very flat. And it's an image. It's almost like a logo. And that logo had, you know, amazing power behind it. It was recreating the fundamentals of one's mental worldview. And we're doing the same thing today with the addition of not just recreating the fundamentals of one one's worldview, but that image isn't just semiotic in nature. It also has this mimetic or this value-based charge, as well as 
it actually serves a specific function. You can use it as collateral. You can use the object as right. So anytime you have complex systems with communities, you always have these objects of sociality that act as vectors for creation. But this time it actually has value baked in. So at the last Renaissance, you had money and money would allow you to go do the printing and what have you. And the images you saw in the printing, you know, it required capital, obviously. But it said, hey, the money system could split, politics could split, work could split. This time you actually have the technology baked in it, not just at one layer like last time, but in both layers. So it's, yeah, they're experiments and they're silly cartoons, but that's precisely the stuff that tends to work out in history. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive, which gets to the other idea is that, you know, most people who are in the midst of these epic changes don't realize them at the time, right? Because like, it's ironic, it's inversely related. The bigger the transformation, the less likely you are to realize it at the time. It's the schools of historians, one of which I like a lot. They think about it in terms of, you know, oceans where you focus on the ripples because you're up here. Maybe there's some currents, but like these deep currents you don't see. And so you see the silly ripples, the pixelated cat. You don't see that it's actually tied to these functions and not just like technical functions, but these like identity functions as well, which are super powerful. Yeah. Just a thought that stirred me as you were explaining all that is you were talking about how powerful these symbols are. It's something that I've definitely noticed in my time in crypto and maybe haven't really explained as much to my non-crypto friends or even the listeners of this podcast as much. Like It's just something that I, I recognize, but I don't always think about, but I'm surrounded by them in crypto. And you talked about people couldn't read, like literally not everyone could read back then. And so instead of an article, we had to show them symbols or a piece of art to convey these messages. And now I almost feel like there is so much content, there's too much to read. I use Google Chrome as my browser and I use groups in my tabs. So I group my tabs by like work stuff. I have a whole research tab and it's closed right now. And I just clicked it and it expanded all my tabs that I have. Like I literally have 35 plus articles that I've marked as you got to read this, Josh, but I can't get to it. And so in a world where we do have the printing press and we're inundated with information, you talk about that pendulum, are we reverting back to a world where we need to be able to convey ideas, information and symbols and signaling in a much more short form way to be able to sift through the noise mm. that is Web 2? Man, that's that's graduate level stuff there. That's exactly right. Like literacy. So yeah, most people couldn't read at the time, right? Maybe 5% of the population. But literacy was like a spectrum. You could kind of make out some things. You could understand the images. Often they had these taglines, huge print that had these snappy little, you know, you can think about it like jingles and a commercial or like football or soccer, like songs or what have you. So that would like stick in your mind, right? And what happened was there was an explosion of literacy for the first time. You go from people not reading to more people reading to an explosion of content, literally hundreds of thousands of these you know, books and tracks and what have you. While that is true, and historians of literacy will look at that and they'll say, hey, look, literacy is taking off and expanding. But at the same time, the non-literate version of the printed material, the, the image base, it acted almost as a secondary, as an organizing rubric for you to make sense of what you're trying to read. So it's not as if there's, you know, long form discourse here and images here. Historically, counterintuitively, they actually tend to work out together and reinforce one another. And that's the same thing we're seeing now. We have an explosion of we've lowered the bar to create from monks writing on manuscripts and illuminating them to to printing and now another expansion you know web 2 which we have some of that but it's still kind of fuji because you're still going through these centralized rails and if you don't do that you need to be semi devish to be able to you know do some of the domain stuff and now we're making it easier and easier and easier so we're we're having an explosion 
I would predict that it's just the beginning. Like we think we've seen an information explosion, but we haven't yet. It's going to be another order of magnitude larger. And when you have more stuff, you actually have more of these images and like more of these organizing rubrics in your head. You can only keep so much stuff in your head at the same time. So having an image to make sense of it is actually more powerful. And then to your other point, yeah, we're surrounded with these images all the time. When it's stasis, when they're the traditional institutions, you tend not to notice them, right? And I don't mean institutions just like banking. I mean, anything like hierarchical that we use for organizing because you're just, you're used to it and it's part of your identity. You don't even think about it, right? Like you just kind of scan over it. It's like white noise. But when there's something new that comes along, and it's a new idea and you say, wait, what is that? And then it's associated with the image. It may cause you to think more carefully about that. Or when it's a new image that seems weird and odd and it's attached to a new idea or a new system that may cause you to think more about that. And that's what we're seeing with crypto, all the weird kind of memes and you know what have you in the images. That was the same thing that happened at the Renaissance. They thought to the power holders, the new art was lowbrow and lo-fi and they thought it was very weird and odd, partially because it was baked into the technology and it communicated certain things against the power hierarchies of the time. And that's literally what we're seeing you know again it looks new and odd and it can't just be a pixelated cat but it's baked into the technology and the power comes from two reasons like one it's a function of community and identity and organizing so that's like the somatic nature of the the charge and then also and this is a bit of a hot take but i, I think it bears out with like historical lenses on the technology actually has a generative power of its own which is crazy we talk about consensus and that's great like more power to everybody but like the technology it's like the you know the scientist in jurassic park like life finds a way the technology actually finds a way the decentralized nature of the technology that creates a win-win value reinforcing layers, it actually tends to like work out and grow, even if it doesn't have super majority or majority or even consensus to start. And so these images do something to your mental world and to your like financial fundamentals at the same time. And those two things create a virtual loop, a virtuous cycle. In episode 140 of the Unstoppable Pod, I was joined by the Biopills team who are building a Web3 game. Now, we really focused on the NFT property of interoperability here, and we talked through why NFTs will improve video games by allowing for interoperable in-game assets. Now, that's a mouthful, but I think it's such an interesting way of thinking about how gaming can be really innovated through Web3 and NFT technology. So this is a, a cool concept to think through. How will video game assets move horizontally from game to game? It really gives players a feeling of ownership for the items they collect or purchase when playing. So let's listen in. Why is gaming so poised for disruption by NFTs? Is it that interoperability aspect? And if so, like what makes you so excited about this idea of interoperable game assets? I feel like Biopills really came out from the jump and said, our NFTs are going to be consumable in the metaverse by all games or many games, not yep. just the one we're building. And so I feel like you guys have put a big emphasis on that. And I wanna kind of hear mm -hmm. from you why is that aspect of crypto and Web3 so powerful for gaming? To start, I think like having a digital item, like a pill that acts as a consumable in one game, we're just limiting it. If it's not in Web3, it's on a centralized game server. That item is just for that game. And the utility that's provided to that item is going to be limited to what that game provides. But with Web3, you know, we, we just increase the potential of that one item. It, it doesn't have to be just a consumable in your game, but it could also act as different types of consumables in other games and maybe not just consumables maybe like we've seen with some talks with our potential partners for example a biopill could act as bait for a venari in the game of legends of venari for example so it could take many different shapes and forms 
and just adding on to that value of that token. At the same time, you know, it could act as a way to provide access to other parts of the game and not just a consumable itself. But for example, pill holders have been getting drops the past year since we've launched, right? So that is just, in my opinion, an added value to owning a game item that's supposed to be just a consumable, but you're actually now getting, eventually you're going to be getting a trip token with that. You're going to be getting some drops. You're going to be getting access to other games that could also provide drops to, to that asset. And then you add another layer to that of access to like merch and all these types of things. So really the, the potential is unlimited when it comes to a game item or a digital item in general. And that's really what makes it exciting. It just opens up the opportunities for so many ways to integrate an NFT, not just in your world, but also other worlds and promoting not just your world, but also promoting other worlds as well. So it fits the Web3 ethos of like community building together trying to create this ultimate open metaverse that is interconnected. And have we ever seen an in-game asset that has utility in other games before? It just seems like it was never possible in any prior Web 2 game. I mean, anyone that's on a console, any computer game, there's never been an in-game item that's usable by any other game before, right? Exactly. No, we haven't. And, you know, this is where it also allows us, you know, it's just like in the traditional world, again, there's these SDKs, these software development kits that usually people would take and use to build upon existing games. And I see the pills and any like consumables in the metaverse and our Web3 ownership. It's basically opening this SDK for any other game that would like to integrate pills. Even if we collaborate with a specific a number of projects, you could have any other project that really didn't have any communication with us. They could link to the blockchain and tell their communities, you know what, if you guys own pills, you're going to get power-ups in our game. And they could just develop on the pills in their game. They don't even need our permission. And this is what's so nice about Web3. And this adds to the interoperability factor. It's just everywhere. It can happen easily. And it's just amazing, really. That's awesome. We'll get into more of how many like partners you imagine using this in, in a minute here. I think it's really exciting. It just opens up the opportunity for how far these NFTs can reach, right? Like the more partnerships that are enabled, the more different communities you get involved, and all of a sudden these NFTs can take a life on their own outside of the bioverse. Exactly, and and just from a gamer's perspective, like imagine you know you spend your time, effort, and skill into one game, and you unlock or earn a certain item that could not just be used in that game, but also knowing that you could go and use that same item in other games. It just I think it adds more exciting factors to gaming. For example, we're still in early talks, and this is by no means an alpha leak, but for example, with Legends of Venari, one of our partners, their game is all about capturing Venaris using bait. But imagine you're able to capture a Venari in their game and then bring that captured creature back into the bioverse that you could use as a sort of pet or a beast in some way, right? A companion. So all of a sudden, just capturing that creature becomes so much more exciting because you know it has utility in other games, and that's really what makes... Web3 gaming, just so exciting from a gamer's perspective. In episode 141, we got to talk with Scott Commoners, who's a Harvard Business School professor and is working on the A16Z crypto team. Now, Scott joined the Unstoppable podcast and broke down Web3 identity, reputation, and how NFTs will allow us to create a better picture of our digital lives while taking that with us as we navigate the internet. 
In the clip with the BioPills team that we just played a minute ago, we talked about interoperability, and here we talk about a very similar concept, but this time as it pertains to identity. So I really like the comparison of how you see the same NFT property of interoperability play out in Web3 Gaming and identity. So let's listen in. The paradigm that you own your identity, that everything sort of lives in your crypto wallet and can be carried from place to place is incredibly powerful, right? Like so much of our Web2 online activity is a form of identity. You know, we're posting photos on Facebook and Instagram. We're updating profiles on LinkedIn. We're sort of creating all of these, you know, receptacles of identity. But first of all, they only live in the the frame of the platform they're in. We don't have a way to sort of like turn them into a more abstract and sort of complete representation of ourselves. And also, they're very siloed. There are integrations, there are plugins and things that let you sort of, you know, use your LinkedIn information to pre-fill some form or something of the sort, but you don't have the ability to sort of really control that identity itself. Yeah. A lot to respond to there. One is the articles that you wrote with Jad were something that I found super insightful on the topic of reputation identity. We'll definitely be sure to link those because it spawned a bunch of questions, some of which I want to ask you today. So thanks for putting that together. And then your comment about Web2 identity and reputation being siloed, I, I kind of want to add a clarification point on that because I feel like the the word siloed, it makes so much sense to me coming from like a computer information systems background. And for people who may not have experience with like database design or something, I want to kind of say that every internet company we interact with basically has a database. And you can think of that database sitting on its own, right? And then there's every website is its own database. And so we say our data is siloed. They're disconnected between all those companies, all those databases and systems. And so in a Web2 world where they're disconnected, we talk about in Web3 how those databases can now talk to each other in open and accessible ways. Am I capturing that right when you talk about 100%. Web2 being siloed and, and the, that difference in Web3? 100%. And, and this is a really important point for you know platform competition too. Christian and I wrote a piece about this for um, uh, CPI Tech Reg Chronicle. When you think about what portable identity means for platform competition and portable identity, portable like assets. The fact that I hold all of my NFTs in a, in a crypto wallet that I can point any individual trading platform to means that if a new trading platform comes along that, you know, sort of is offering more rewards or lower prices or whatever, people can just switch over if they want. They just, you know, take their crypto wallet and point the new platform to it. And that's precisely what happened in the context of LooksRare, right? You know, when they, they launched yeah. through what's called a vampire attack, they provided direct incentives to try and get people to switch over. And they were able to use the fact that these databases are public, right? They could, you know, use the fact that they could see who had made a lot of OpenSea transactions and directly offer them incentives. You know, you have a reputation, if you will, for being a, a big trader in NFTs. And LooksRare can say, great, we're going to reward you in particular if you join our platform. And then the actual act of switching platforms is as simple as connecting your wallet to a different site. Let's imagine that in the context of something like social media. You know, in the Web2 world, you can't just sort of take your, your content out of Facebook or, or out of Twitter or something of the sort. You, you actually can typically export it, right? These platforms give an export option, but it's sort of in a very disor you know, sort of like proprietary organization and you can take a lot of your data, the things you've created, but you often can't take, you know, platform assets or, or platform generated data from your interactions. 
whereas often a lot of that actually does live on chain in Web3 as well. You can take these assets off of a Web2 platform by exporting them, but there's no way to like use that. It's not in a standardized format that you can just bring to some other platform and have that platform then plug into and use. Whereas again, in Web3, because everything lives on these interoperable standards, interoperable meaning, you know, sort of the same digital asset can be used sort of across platforms. They all sort of agree to like plug into the same type of infrastructure or, or same, you know, sort of category of infrastructure. It really is possible to take your assets and use them in lots of different ways, right? You can have an NFT in your wallet that you point your Twitter profile image to, and then you also like point some online gallery to, and you also use as like a, you know, a projected metaverse wearable in Decentraland or something like that. That's very powerful, right? You have this one digital asset, which you yourself own and can simultaneously and seamlessly sort of port into all of these different platforms because they're all working on a single standard. For the last podcast episode included in the best of month July, we're joined by Avery Akinini, who is the president of Vayner3, a Web3 consultancy. Now, Avery and her team are working to guide the world's leading enterprises and intellectual property owners in the next iteration of consumer behavior. She joined the Unstoppable podcast and shared the Web3 playbook for brands looking to make an impact in the crypto space. So I hope you enjoy this one. And thank you again for listening to the best of the month July episode in the Unstoppable podcast. This is the last clip of the month. Enjoy. Can you describe a little bit of like the brand playbook pre-Web3 and then now with Web3 and NFTs? And what is their playbook today if they want to start engaging this new audience around collectibles or, or NFTs? I think the brand playbook in general is create an emotional connection with consumers that makes them value your product irrationally. If you look at consumer packaged goods companies, apparel companies, car companies, the products are fundamentally all very, very similar. It's the branding and the emotional connection that those companies have created that makes me say like, oh, I want to drive a Mercedes versus a BMW because I'm that kind of a person or I drink Pepsi instead of Coke because that's who I am when the products are actually super similar. So the idea of brand building fundamentally really, really works. It's why brands do much better than sort of private label companies who just sell the generic product. So I think that has been the playbook since the, the dawn of time, right? Like since way before Web 2, when there was radio, when there was print ads, all of that has been the playbook. And brands have adopted new forms of technology as they've come around. They used to, you know, maybe do a print ad, then they did a radio ad, then they did a TV ad, then they did a Facebook post, then they did a TikTok. Now maybe they're looking into an NFT as a way to, to engage consumers. The playbook has shifted in every iteration of consumer behavior, though, because certain brands have been able to remain relevant through centuries. I like to give the example of Stella Artois, which is a partner of, of ours at Vayner, because people always ask me, like, how do you know Web2 brands need to pivot into Web3? And I laugh because Stella Artois was invented in the 1300s, and they have been finding ways to connect with consumers for centuries. Stella Artois was, interestingly enough, one of the first adopters of sort of NFTs. They did a program with Zed Run well over a year ago, um, which was led by a woman named Lindsay McInerney, who's incredible. I think that what they were able to do was to find a new way to connect with their consumers and do something that drives buzz and attention and brings them into a place of cultural relevance. That cultural relevance aspect continues to matter. Now there's just a new dimension. And in this new dimension, new paradigm, the 
decentralized consumers don't want to give away their consumer data the same way they they felt that data was siphoned from the large web two platforms they might want to have the ability to have the asset to trade it to sell it to hold it and they in certain cases also want to be able to participate more from the brands that they love and the brands that they want to interact with which is a new way for brands to think about their super engaged communities. But I think it's a good challenge. And in the past you know, couple of months alone, we've seen some large fashion brands like Lacoste even start to create programs where their community of holders is able to vote on certain products that they can make and, and other things like that that start to give certain elements of power into their communities. You said a couple things there that I really want to double click and highlight here now. The first one being you said brands want to create an emotional connection that makes you value the product irrationally. I think that's a super interesting way of saying it. And you really do see that in the NFT world every, every single day. I mean, everything's irrational, essentially, about the NFT world. I almost wonder how much of that irrational loyalty comes from the price over the last 18 months generally going up versus now we're in a down market. And do you think that that fan loyalty brand loyalty can still be there, even if the price isn't necessarily um, you buy an NFT and you can sell it for more later? Yeah, I think this era of hyper commercialization in the NFT world that we've seen over the last 18 months is not going to be the future of NFTs. That's not the way that, you know, you engage with buying a beer or buying a pair of shoes. You don't buy a pair of shoes for $50 thinking you can sell it for 100. You buy them because you want to put shoes on your feet. I think that that utility aspect is going to become way more commonplace in NFT programs and projects and that financial speculation aspect. While it will certainly continue in certain cycles, I don't think that will be as much of the norm as it is now. And I think that that type of speculative behavior has created a small community of, of sort of the degen crowd who have helped grow the NFT community to what it is to date. But I don't think that's going to be the future because that's not how normal consumers perceive purchasing products. I definitely hold some similar beliefs to that too. From that investment standpoint, it's more about finding the ones that are going to last the test of time. And I think some of those are more of the generative art pieces myself. You know, good points. And I also want to just circle back and you mentioned data ownership and control. I think that's so important too. And we're still figuring out ways on how people interact with decentralized applications. And do you log in with your wallet? Do you log in with a NFT domain? How that data transfer goes? And I think a big leg up with Web3 is how you can now choose and control who's accessing your data versus just that being blindly taken from you when you're using an application. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.